A listener note before we begin. We're launching a three-week Ask an Expert podcast series about all things free speech, online censorship and deplatforming, campus speech and cancel culture, and education and book bans. So here's where you come in. We want to answer your questions. What does the law say about social media companies deplatforming users? Does our constitution support cancel culture? If you have a question you'd like us to answer, call us and leave us a message at 212-549-2558. That's 212-549-2558. Or email us at podcast at aclu.org. Okay, now on to the show. From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Linda Morris. I use she, her, and they, them pronouns, and I'm a staff attorney for the ACLU Women's Rights Project. I'll be your guest host for this episode. For over half a century, affirmative action has woven its way into the fabric of our society through non-discrimination policies and initiatives aimed at establishing equal opportunity for women, people of color, and other minorities across schools and the workplace. Over the years, courts and colleges have repeatedly clashed over the role of race in admissions policies. The Supreme Court has repeatedly upheld affirmative action programs, most recently in 2016, But this year, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear two cases on the question of whether race-conscious admissions programs are lawful. And with a conservative majority on the bench, there is a real risk that affirmative action will be found unconstitutional. Joining us today is Amber Hikes, the ACLU Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer, to talk about the potential impact of this decision on culture and practice the importance of moving beyond checking boxes, and how they've developed and lived these values in their own life. Regular At Liberty listeners will remember Amber as our awesome guest host from last October. Amber, welcome back to At Liberty, and huge congratulations to you on a recent award from the Philadelphia Human Rights Campaign. Thank you so very much. I was really delighted to uh, receive the award in my beloved Philadelphia, and I obviously deeply respect um, all the work that HRC does. Uh, So it was really quite a delight. Can you tell us a little bit about the award and why you won it? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So it's for um, outstanding leadership and service to the LGBTQ community. Uh, And I believe I was awarded it because of some of the uh, work that I did while I was directing the mayor's office of LGBT affairs in the city of Philadelphia. And so we did um, a ton of policy that impacted LGBTQ Philadelphians, um, also did quite a a lot of work around um, incarceration and the way that uh, police and law enforcement engage with LGBTQ folks. Um, And we added black and brown stripes to the rainbow flag, which was (laughs) uh, was supposed to be a nice little city initiative and actually ended up uh, being a pretty significant global shift that that, uh, we're very proud of. Yes, congratulations. You know, as I said, extremely well-deserved. So I want to dig in a little further into Amber as a person, but before we go there, I wanted to talk a little bit about what's happening right now um, that I mentioned in the introduction, which is that there's a lot of conversations about affirmative action. And we know that affirmative action is just one piece of this bigger diversity, equity, and inclusion pie. But I wanted to hear from you to ground our listeners, what is affirmative action and what does it mean to you? 
Sure, absolutely. So um, really appreciate this question. And you're right, this it, that's a, it's a huge question. There's so many places that we could start with this, but let's just ground in some definitions, right? When we're talking about affirmative action in the United States, we're talking about laws, policies, right, guidelines that really are intended to focus on ways that we can end and correct the effects of discrimination, right? And so those can come in the forms of government mandated, um, government approved uh, kind of p- programs, right? And so one of the ways that people think about affirmative action, right, are the um, the impacts that it can have on education, on employment, right? And traditionally, affirmative action has been targeted to um, really have an equity lens and correct some of the historical discrimination against um uh, um, like uh, folks, people of color and and women, uh, frankly. But the second part of your question around what does affirmative action mean to me, it's actually, it's very interesting. Um, I got my start in, um, in equity work with an, an equity program that was really like affirmative action in, in, in schools. And it was about really being able to help uh, young folks who were historically underrepresented in, in college. Education equity is something that's incredibly important to me um, and has been really important to my, my family uh, as well. And I'm also um, a beneficiary of education equity programs. I was involved in those kinds of programs for um, high school, for middle school, um, even in undergrad, right? And uh, all the way through to grad school. So um, being able to have an equitable approach to make folks that, that look like me be able to help us, um, you know, reduce some of these barriers with access to education, I think it's incredibly important. Thank you for that grounding. And actually, I wanted to pick up on a thread that you mentioned a few times, which is that affirmative action is often about correcting these sort of historic systemic inequities that are at play and have been at play for a really long time. And, you know, some critics of affirmative action programs have said we don't need these programs anymore. Maybe we needed them when they were conceived in the 1960s, but they're just not as important as they used to be. Do you have a response to that? You know, do I do I ever? So number one, um, I think I can speak as a Black person in this country and say, I wish, I wish deeply with everything in me, not just for myself or the people in the communities I care about, but for the young person, the young 12-year-old who, the 13-year-old now, who's my godchild, right? The children in my life. Um, I wish that we didn't need these programs, right? I wish that we didn't still have such tremendous barriers for for education, right, for employment um, that so disproportionately impact people of color uh, and women. So I, I wish that was the case, but it's just, it's frankly not, right? And there's just scores and scores of data that, that show us that. Um, but I could even say, again, anecdotally, because I'm speaking fairly um, fairly personally here, when I want to pull in this thread of kind of education equity piece, I just mentioned my godchild, this 13-year-old, who's now looking at high schools, right, and is from a poor kind of West Philadelphia um, area and is looking now at schools kind of outside of their their neighborhood and is doing some of these tours and is absolutely gobsmacked by the opportunities that kids that have privilege, right, and class privilege in particular, are afforded. And and in some ways, it's really exciting that perhaps this young person is going to be able to have access to something like this because of scholarship programs, right? And um, all kinds of other equity measures that make that available to them. And then in other ways, it's deeply painful that they have to go through so many hoops, right, in order to be able to have access to some of the, the offerings that, um, that frankly, white 
children and folks with more class privilege have, have access to. Um, so again, I wish that we didn't need affirmative action programs. I wish that we didn't need um, educational equity programs, but that's just, um, unfortunately, we haven't made the progress that we that we so desperately need to. Yes, absolutely. And I think all you need to do is talk to a young person of color, a, you know, a younger person who is trying to navigate what their goals are and the obstacles that they're confronting when you really realize this these systems are not fixed and they're far from fixed. Now, related to that, many scholars have reacted to the fear that the Supreme Court may invalidate affirmative action programs by saying that, you know, diversity and inclusion has been such a widely accepted practice now. And I think this kind of goes to what you were just saying, that actually we're quite a distance away from where we need to be. Um, but some some critics have said, you know, this is such a widely accepted practice now. Um, we're often talking about diversity and inclusion in the workplace and in education. And so basically you can't erase that um, through a Supreme Court decision. Do you believe that that's true? Gosh, I, 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 I really wish. Again, I really wish that was the case. Um, <laughs> but I think time and time again, we see that accountable uh, inclusion, right? Accountable diversity, accountable equity measures are far from um, are far from the kind of talking points that people are doing around diversity, equity, and inclusion. I absolutely agree with the premise that there are a lot of people that are talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but from my perspective, there are not enough people that are doing it. And that's that's what's that's what's con- concerning. You know, if I could like talk a little bit about what it looks like to be accountable, you know, in um, equity and inclusion um, spaces, and how we can really be thoughtful about moving away from checking boxes. When I was younger, I used to do some kayaking, and uh, what they teach you when you're learning how to kayak in a group is to point positive, right? And, and so what that means is that if there's a big grouping of rocks, you don't point to the rocks and tell people, hey, watch out, right? You point to the open water and tell people to head there. Because when you point to the rocks, even if you're saying don't paddle there, it's dangerous, people see your point and they just sort of head there, right? There's something that our brains do um, that make us do that. And so you always want to point positive. You don't want to show people what to avoid. You want to show people what to head toward. And so I always thought that translated well into equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging work, right? So, the, you know, the way this connects is that it's it's better to point to what's possible with inclusion than point to the consequence of what happens without. And so when I'm seeing folks that are talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I see folks moving in a space that's it's almost like fear-based, right? Um, when we're focused on litigation, when we talk about Supreme Court, when we're focused on, uh, when we have a litigation focus, often we'll land at compliance, right? Just at compliance. Like we want to make sure that we'll do what we need to do so that we don't get sued, right? Which is not, and that's the kind of box checkiness that I'm talking about. But when we show up for for folks and we tell them, we can show you, like, if you do this, this is how you can, for companies, right? This is how you can edge out your competitors, right? This is how you'll get better products, better service. But for us on the nonprofit kind of organizational space, this is how you're going to have happier employees that are going to be longer lasting. I'll, I'll just say, like, I don't need to see necessarily your Black History Month Instagram post or, you know, how big your float was in Pride. Um, I, I want to know how you're tracking, how you're reporting, how you're funding this kind of work, really how you're supporting um, diverse 
employees that, that you have, right? And also diverse students that you have if we're talking about uh, perhaps education. So yeah, sorry, I went on for a little bit there. I get <laughs> kind of passionate, passionate about that. No, I, I can definitely hear your passion and I really appreciate that. And I have so much gratitude for that. I, you know, I, I do think that there's a real point to what you said about how we need to be thinking beyond compliance. We need to be thinking beyond appearance and really thinking about what's possible. What is the world that we can really build? What is the world that we're fighting for where people feel affirmed in the workplace and schools, where they're welcomed, where they are, you know, an integrated part and that is their space as much as it is anyone else's. Um, and maybe related to, to what you just raised, um, you know, there was a recent class action lawsuit filed by a former NFL coach, Brian Flores, against the NFL after he was fired by the Miami Dolphins um, as their head coach. I don't know a lot about sports, but at least in this case, he accused the league of systemic racism. And civil rights leaders have come to his his side with support. And um, one of the arguments that Brian Flores made was that the Rooney Rule, which requires NFL teams to interview candidates of color for coaching positions, is only for appearance sake, and it needs to be replaced. And I think this sort of gets to the points that you're talking about, which is how do we think a little bit deeper? or How do we think more expansively about what we want these um, policies to look like? And so, you know, Building off of what you were just talking about, why is affirmative action are just those policies that require us to just think about checking boxes not enough? That's right. And, and you know, I should have said earlier when I was talking about affirmative action, right, that it's, it's still necessary, right? But it's still just the floor, right? It's just the floor. And I think people are looking at affirmative action as, as the ceiling. Right. And that's really, that's really the challenge. It's needed, right? But it's just the floor. So, um, so it's funny you, you said that Linda, that you, uh, not, not a huge football fan. I'm a, I'm a very big football fan, have a lot of challenges with the NFL, very obviously. Um, <laughs> but I've been a, a football fan since a very young person. I actually played football in high school and, and a little bit in college. So I'm, I'm ready to talk about this one. Um, and it's funny. I remember reading. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like that's a whole different podcast, right? Uh, but I remember reading all these articles that talk about how to be a head coach in the NFL, like what what to study, what where to intern, all this stuff. And you you know, not one of them said don't be black. Um, but let me tell you, when like seventy percent of your players are black and three percent which is one person, by the way, of your head coaches are Black, you might as well have said, don't be Black, right? Um, but also, just for fun, Linda, do you want to guess how many Black owners there are in the NFL? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Zero. gosh. Yes, I want <laughs> Zero. Yeah, that's what I was going to guess. Yeah. You would have been right. Um, but, but the Rooney Rule, which of course is not about interviewing. Let's, so the interview, the, the Rooney Rule is about who you interview and making sure that you have diverse pool, right? But it's not about interviewing at least one Black candidate. It's just about a diverse candidate, right? Which, when the supermajority of the group is heterosexual white men, right? White says men. Diversity is a pretty expansive concept. Um, but even so, it's complicated because the truth is, is that there are actually, at this point, less Black head coaches now than when the rule was created, right? There's one now, and there were three when the rule was created. So at some point, we have to say, you know what, this was well-intentioned, but it doesn't work. We have to try something new. Um, so one of the big issues with this kind of quota is that it gives the appearance 
of inclusion, without the support of inclusion, right? This is back to the box checking that we're talking about. And so what I want the NFL and all of our companies and organizations to be thinking about is something that I call like cleaning your house first. And so what I mean, this is also about accountable inclusion, right? And what I mean by that is you need to be looking around and saying, is this place not just welcoming, because that's fine, but is it actually inclusive? Is it a space where folks won't be tokenized, where they won't be invisibilized, where racism, where homophobia, where xenophobia, where ableism are going to be challenged directly and quickly and effectively? You don't have to be perfect, but you need to be creating spaces where folks aren't going to experience harm. Because if you don't, you can do all the recruiting you want, but it's just going to be a revolving door, right? Folks can get in and say, oh, I don't know what this mess is. They're going to run right back out, right? So just kind of wrap up here. I'll, I'll stick. I want to give a quick example and I'll stick with the NFL because they're, they're tough over there. They can take it. Um, but since the Rooney rule, we have had some success, right? We have had some, some black head coach hires, but all three that we've seen were fired. And this is so important because we see this across industries. Women who are Fortune 500 CEOs, much more likely to be fired than their male counterparts. Um, religious communities that may hire their first like LGBTQ clergy person find, will find that they are more likely to fire those, those folks more than any other clergy before them, right? There are so many instances that we have of this. So often when you're the first in a field, you get the praise and the accolades for like making this decision. And then we think we've done enough and we're done, right? But you cannot stop there. You have to support these folks. You need to make sure they have access to what they need. So often they're they're fired because they're just not supported. Often they um, the traditional hire, right, a person that has more power, privilege, access, right. Those folks actually don't want the job, right? There's usually a mess that they got to clean up, and those traditional hires are like, yeah, you know what? I see how bad things are. I've got more choices. I don't need to take this job. But then the diverse candidates again, quotes, often do. And then when they don't clean up that mess or they can't clean up the mess that they didn't create in the first place, it doesn't go away fast enough, they're fired, right? So if we're just checking boxes for appearances and we're not doing the real serious work of cleaning our house first, then we're never going to get to kind of meaningful equity, meaningful inclusion, or even meaningful diversity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really loved the way that you framed that. I do want to ask you, I think related to what you just shared, what do you see as the greatest problem that the diversity, equity, and inclusion space is facing? And how can we make sure that we are doing more than just the box checking? What measures can we take? Hmm. I don't know if I can narrow it down to one big challenge because I will say it depends on the field, right? It depends on the sector. But if I could find kind of an overarching one, it is this piece that we continue to talk about, about how do we do this meaningfully? How do we make sure that we're making this making this really stick? Because our um, our world is shifting so quickly. And also because we're experiencing so many different levels of trauma, right? Um, constantly, it really is difficult to get a hold on what different impacted communities need from their institutions, right? From, and, and by institutions, I'm, I'm talking about government institutions, but also from their workplaces, right? From education institutions as well. But if we don't get culture right? Kind of like internally, and this could be culture in a workplace or it can be culture for for our, our kind of world communities, right? If we don't get that piece right, then we're going to be falling down on the job. Um, and so what I 
I think the, the big the big challenge for folks now is finding out how we get more comfortable with calling each other forward and calling each other along in our journeys without shutting down the conversation, pushing people away from the difficult, like real necessary um, conversations and tactics that need to happen. Like that's that's where we're losing folks, right? Discourse is being shut down. People are feeling shame um, and they're not showing up for the work because they're afraid of getting it wrong. They're afraid of making those mistakes. They're afraid of being attacked, right? Um, And so, but we need folks to be able to show up to do better for one another. And so I think that that's like, that's the big sticking point that I think I see across not just sectors, but across communities, right? Um, Is how do we call each other forward? How do we call each other in? Right. Um, and keep engaging in the conversation and keep progressing without shutting folks down and and losing people. I think I think that's honestly um, that's our that's our biggest kind of sticking point right now. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And that is hard work also that you're talking about. And that takes a major commitment from folks. And I do want to pivot a little bit to talk about Amber, the person, uh, the incredible person that you are. And, you know, you've been a community organizer for decades. You have a master's degree in social work. You have worked in the Philadelphia's mayor office as the executive director of LGBTQ affairs. And now you're the ACLU's very first chief equity and inclusion officer. Just a few things, just a few incredible <laughs> feats that you you have under your belt. And, you know, you've been tackling a lot of the same kinds of issues from a lot of different angles. And I wanted to ask you, you know, what brought you to this work and also what keeps you there? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so, <laughs> oh, where do I, where do I even start? Um, so you're absolutely right, Linda. First chief equity and inclusion officer. And I just have to say, um, this is, I mean, probably playing to the right crowd here, but I just so deeply appreciate the ACLU. Um, I I think if you ask any ACLU or they'll, they'll tell you the reason that they, came to do their work is because of the importance of the work that the ACLU does, but also the reason that they stay is because of the people at the ACLU. I am like truly deeply inspired by the human beings that I work with every single day. And of course, the human beings that we fight with and for. Um, but uh, so it's I truly the greatest honor to, to, to do this work, even when it's challenging. And it is, these are very challenging times. And this is challenging work to do. Um, so so, uh, so this is that, that's what I do now. Um, but I've been doing organizing work, um, for LGBTQ folks, folks of color, people with disabilities, um, immigrants, uh, women, people who are incarcerated, excuse me. Um, this is like, this has been my life's work. Um, and above all that, I'm, I'm black and queer. And this time that we're in, this, it's not just the fight of my life, it's the fight for my life um, because of all the identities that I hold and the experience that I have um, in this work. So I, I come to this from like activism and organizing, but I'm always in service to my people. Um, and that's really what, what moves me. Um, I know you share, you asked me to share a little bit more about kind of how I got here. Uh, most people maybe don't know this, but I was born in Japan. Um, and a uh, military kid, which is very exciting. And so it's in Japan for uh, for a few years. I was born in Okinawa and then have lived lived all over the place in Hawaii and Louisiana and Georgia and Delaware. Um, 
but I'm a child of the American South. And so I was raised by a Black mom and I was very lucky that my mom like celebrated our Blackness every single day. And she taught us about our ancestors and she brought our history into our home. And she never let my sister and I forget not for a minute, how brilliant our skin was and how brave our people were, right? And how much divinity was held inside of us. And so she reminded me that our highest calling must always be in service to others. Um, and that was something that was really, really, really important. Sundays after church were spent like volunteering at food banks and like nights were spent with watching her mentor young Black women, right? Um, because she felt personally responsible for the pipeline of, of leadership in our communities. Um, so that was something that I grew up seeing as a very young person. And I feel really, really lucky to do that. I, I, um, I know that Lincoln had this quote that all I, all I am or all I hope to be, I owe to my mother. And I, I, I mean, it may be trite, but I, I believe that really, really um, deeply. So at my core, like I am just moved by the power of communities and not just my own communities and the identities that I hold, but the ways that I can be in solidarity and um, allyship and frankly, accompliship with, um, with, with other identities that I don't hold. I think that that is my greatest calling and the ways that, that all of us should be able to kind of show up um, in, in the world. Thank you so much, Amber, for sharing that. I was very deeply moved to, to hear you talk about your mom in particular and, um, just what an incredible force in your life uh, she sounds like she was. And, um, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of leadership pipelines, actually, that you you just mentioned, um, and also talk a little bit about intersectionality. So I know in my life in particular, um, intersectionality is just a reality. Um, I'm a non-binary and queer woman of color. I also live with a disability. All these different aspects of myself are not things that I can separate from my my day-to-day life and how I move in the world. You mentioned that when you were working in the Philadelphia mayor's office, um, you did a lot of work addressing anti-Black racism within the LGBT community in Philadelphia. And one of the things that you've said you're most proud of is this LGBTQ leadership pipeline initiative that your office launched. And I wanted to ask you about the genesis of that project and what you learned through that experience about building systems that recognize and center intersectionality. Oh my gosh. Can I tell you, Linda, I'm so grateful for this question. Um, Folks ask me a good bit about my um, experience in the mayor's office, and they're always focused on that damn flag. And, <laughs> and I, the, the flag is really important, and it started some really significant conversations. Um, but I, I always get frustrated because we did such real substantive work, and not that a flag isn't substantive, right? But a flag is very literally a symbol. And my work was around how do we take symbols and put them into make them substance, and that pipeline is one of the most, in addition to like all the policy that we created, one of the most significant kind of pieces of substance that we had that came out of that time. Um, so thank you so much for, for that question. Um, you're absolutely right. We were dealing with pretty significant um, experiences of racism within the LGBTQ community. And I want to be clear that it's not, that was not a Philadelphia problem. This is like a community problem. There is racism within the LGBTQ community. Philadelphia was just trying to tackle it in a meaningful way. Um, and so again, we did, we did policy. Um, we did town halls, right? We had these big state of the union kind of events so that we were making sure that there was accountability around the leadership of our communities. But 
The thing I'm absolutely most proud of is this leadership pipeline because we were able to look at our community organizations, our LGBTQ community organizations, and say there's a massive disconnect, not unlike the disconnect with we were talking about with the Rooney Rule in the NFL, but we have Philadelphia, the city that is that is like 40-something percent black, right? We have this, the population looks this way, but the leadership of this community could not be more different, right? You are serving black and brown um, LGBTQ folks, right? Uh, trans and binary folks, and the leadership was all white and cis, right? Like this is a serious issue. And so what can we do to make sure that the the leadership of our community looks different five, 10 years from now than it does today. We cannot look back and say, we're still in the same place because we didn't do something serious. So we knew that boards are one of the places where folks can really have some leadership within the community. Um, and so we started, we started there. And it was about, again, with a very intersectional lens, seeing how can we have younger, queerer, um, browner, and of course, like folks with disabilities, for sure, that are occupying these seats on the board and are helping to make decisions for these organizations. Like, how can we get them in those seats? So how do we skill these folks up and before they actually sit on these boards? Because so many of us that have sat on boards, you learn that once you get there, right? It's all like on the job training. And so we invested in them as a community, right? There was this application process. Folks need to talk about their identities, what they want to bring to this, the kind of change they wanted to see. And then we had months-long courses where those same LGBTQ nonprofits that we were looking to, to provide board seats, they were the ones that were coming in and actually training the, the, the folks that were going to be sitting on the boards, right? So you'd have talking about the difference between friend raising and fundraising, right? You'd have to talk about board governance. Like you do all of this before they actually got the seat. And then at the end of the program, there was like a matching event, right? They got to, they got to go around and meet the nonprofit leaders. They get to talk to other boards and then they got to write down, you know, like these are my top five. And then the, the, the folks that were actually with the organizations got to do the same thing. And we matched them. I am so proud to say that in our first year, we placed absolutely everyone, 100% placement. Um, and those folks still serve on those boards, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. Um, and they've some of them have gone on to, to be um, you know, full-time members after they've rolled off the boards, uh, full-time staff people. So it's just, it's been absolutely transformative. Um, and I think it could be a model for other cities, but I'm so glad for the question because I couldn't be prouder of that. I love that. And that is an incredible victory and just such an incredible incredible program to bring to any city uh, to really, you know, build up leadership from diverse communities. Uh, so I wanted to um, change gears a little bit and talk about the ACLU. About a year ago, the ACLU launched its Systemic Equality Initiative to advocate for policy changes of the Biden administration to advance societal equity for and empower the civic participation of Black and Indigenous and other people of color. Where are we in that fight? And what can our ACLU supporters do to stay involved? Oh my gosh. So I, you know, one of the things I want to say about systemic equality, which I'm so proud of this, this program, is that when we were launching systemic equality, we wanted to make sure 
and I think this is a conversation that we have at the ACLU a lot, we wanted to make sure that we were being thoughtful about how our insides match our outsides, right? We also wanted to make sure that we were turning the mirror back on ourselves and saying, if we can have, if we can call for justice and equity externally, we need to be shouting, demanding, and holding ourselves accountable to it internally as well. And so I'm really proud to say that with systemic equality, we have both internal and external commitments. And so the external commitments, folks can, can look, that we've got blogs that have been written about it, you know, you can go to our website and there's so much incredible information about the systemic equality agenda. And we're going to be, I believe, I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself, but launching like a 2.0 version of it as well to, again, keep ourselves um, accountable to it. And the internal agenda is looking at, again, this diversity, equity, and inclusion piece. And how can we make sure that the ACLU of next year and the next five years, the next 10 years is stronger, right? And more diverse and more committed to equity than ever before. And so partly... It's about um, actual, like, literal diversity, but it's also about how are we investing in the leadership of the folks who are here um, with us currently, right? So it's about pipeline programs like we just talked about. It's about making sure that we have professional development and like real meaningful learning and professional development for, um, for uh, directly impacted groups, right? It's about investing in our young people with the Summer Advocacy Institute um, and making sure that we have like a keen eye on who's in who's in those classes, what kind of work are they doing, and then how can we get them again into our ACLU pipeline? Can those Advocacy Institute students end up being interns, maybe being fellows, right? Coming back and being able to be full-time staff, right? So just making sure that we are supporting and setting the ACLU of the future up now. I love that. I'm so excited and I can't I can't wait to see what happens. Um so in our final moments, I you know, I wanted to to leave you with maybe another big small question. You know, I know that this work is so meaningful to you. You know, you can hear that passion in your voice and you know, when you talk about these issues and I know that it can also be very taxing at times. And there are definitely moments where we have to grieve, um, moments of defeat where we feel anger, um, or just moments where we need to refill our cup, where we're just a little bit tired, we're a little exhausted. How do you stay hopeful in moments of despair or defeat? You know, we know that hope is a discipline, right? Hope is a discipline. So it's something that we have to, we have to practice. We have to work at constantly, even when we don't feel particularly hopeful. Um, and this work, you know, I mentioned earlier, is so incredibly challenging. And I think the thing that's most challenging about my job is holding space for the lifelong advocates that the people at the ACLU are and holding space when they need to break down or the work is getting so hard, right? I think about my colleagues who have spent their whole lives fighting for reproductive justice, right? My my colleagues who spent their whole lives fighting for um, trans and non-binary inclusion, right? Um, And justice for trans youth. And just seeing like the horrendous attacks on on both of these communities, right? The folks who are impacted by these issues um, and seeing like life's work, not slip away necessarily, right? But see it be really challenged and every single day, it takes a toll on on the body, takes a toll on the mind, right? Um, so for me, it's remind- reminding myself constantly that the that moral arc is, is long, but it bends towards justice. We are going to continue to be in this fight together and our peace 
and our joy are as important for liberation than anything else as our resistance is. Absolutely, we have to be weighing those things at the same kind of weight and strength. Resistance and our peace and our joy and our hope, we have to pay equal attention to those things. And so it's reminding myself about the importance of of joy and uh, kind of drinking it in uh, abundantly. And so I try to provide that for others and um, and I let others provide that for me when I when I really need it. So that's 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 the tip. <laughs> that's the tip when hope feels out of reach. That's the best tip ever, Amber. <laughs> thank you so much. And just thank you so much for your time, for all of the incredible work that you do. We have endless, endless gratitude to you and um, just really appreciate your time and for being here with us. Thanks so much, Linda. It's such a pleasure. Always such a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate your feedback. And on a personal note from me, this is my last episode. I've so enjoyed my time with you all, but don't worry, you'll hear a familiar voice on the podcast next week. Our executive producer, the amazing Kendall Seesmeyer, is back on the podcast. Until next week, take care and be kind to each other.